welcome again, everyone, to Let's Talk ID, the podcast that uh, the IDSA president, which is me, does uh, periodically. And today I'm really excited to have uh, Rochelle Walensky come back and talk with us again. And it's really, it's great to see her. And uh, Rochelle, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today and share your thoughts um, with the ID community. I think it'd be very hard to overstate what a difficult two years it's been for the the U.S., the entire world, and the CDC, uh, and ID doctors as well. Um, but our field has played a pivotal role in the, the COVID response. You took over the role uh, as director of the CDC a few months into the pandemic. And I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you was, um, What's that been like? And, and do you feel like your training in infectious disease prepared you well enough for what you faced? And if so, what kind of challenges have you had to deal with? First of all, Dan, it's, I'm so delighted to be back with my friends and family at IDSA. It's, it's a privilege to, to be here. And, and maybe just to reflect on the, the, you know, how you set this up. So January 20th is when I started, the day that the president was inaugurated. So eight months into the pandemic, where I, I would say I had, you know, I was deeply ingrained in all activities of infectious diseases and what that meant for ID physicians and practitioners in general for those first eight months, and then pivoted and moved deeply into what it's meant for public health. Uh, it has been essential that I have been infectious disease trained through this as I look through the data and work to make public health level decisions. And I think the experience that I had in an ID in those first eight months um, has been invaluable as we move forward. And, and I took this position at CDC. It's not lost on me. When I think about sort of the phases of the pandemic in my own point of view, it was sort of front lines with ID docs for the first half and now front lines with public health practitioners and CDC through this second chapter, which is now turning out to be longer than I think all of us had hoped. This has been hard. This has been hard, as you said, for the American public, for people who've lost loved ones, for people who've suffered um, through disease and through long COVID, through, for many different things. And then, of course, it's been hard at the clinical level and hard at the public health level. I think one of the challenges that has um, I have seen firsthand from the CDC perch is really the moving science and communicating that moving science in simplistic terms so that America understands and so that we can pivot as that science changes. So there's so much that has been gray for all of us during this pandemic. There is this commitment to lead with the science. And I think that that commitment very much holds. I think the challenge is that the implication of that was that somehow that science would be black and white. And in fact, that science has been anything but black and white. And that once we finally think we understand where we are, it changes. It changes. It gives us a new variant. It gives us waning immunity. It gives us different combinations of vaccinations. So we are absolutely leading with the science, standing on the shoulders of ID clinicians, physicians, researchers, and public health, and, and many different disciplines. But it's emerging, and it's changing. And that has been, that's been hard, I think, not just for me in this pandemic, but I think for all of us. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a difficult message to get, because I think most people are used to getting the science presented to them once it's all been worked out. And this kind of, well, here's a curveball and we need to change 
is often seen as, well, they didn't get it right in the first place, which really isn't true. And that makes the message much harder to get, get through. And if I might, I, I think one of the real challenges here is you're absolutely right. We usually have it all kind of packaged with a bow when it's presented to the public. And we save meetings like, you know, ID week and, and other scientific meetings to have really important discourse around where things might be gray. And usually that's resolved by the time it gets out into the open. But that now gray scientific discourse is not happening in our meetings, or maybe it is, but it's also happening on, you know, evening news and Mm -hmm. Twitter and places where it's important to have that dialogue. And yet, how do we communicate a unified scientific approach when that dialogue is so very public? I guess the other question I had is having kind of come at it from both ends as you have, what do you think this pandemic has told you about the value of the infectious disease field and the people working in it in public health and the need to build a robust ID workforce from both ends? I I think it's essential. You and I had, I had the great privilege of working (laughs) with you on a piece earlier in the pandemic about how thin we were in an ID workforce. Many of those people within the ID workforce become public health experts, become public health academic experts, but also in our state and local health departments. And so maybe I'll take this moment to bridge not just our our ID expertise, but also public health and epidemiologic expertise. We've written about the paucity of ID workforce, but maybe just speak about the public health workforce at large. And that is, um, you know, over the last decade, we have been presented pandemic health threats, public health threats about every year. And these have included things like H1N1, Ebola, Zika, and now, of course, COVID-19. But over the last decade, there have been over 60,000 public health jobs that have been eliminated in this country and a decrease in budget of about 10%. And so when you think about sort of the frailty of that workforce, many of whom are infectious disease epidemiologic trained physicians, it has left us in a place that was not great to tackle what was handed to us in March of 2020 here in this country. In many places, the only public health person is the infectious disease doctor that's there, but it's just not an infrastructure that's sustainable if we're gonna have to be able to react to something like this in the future, even another resurgence of of COVID-19. I totally agree that those are areas that that we should be focusing. And I'm also happy to say that, that the article we wrote is a very, important piece of data uh, when fighting for programs to improve both staffing and infectious disease doctors and anyone that works in this sort of field, including public health. Hello, my name is Dr. Mati Flechwayo Davis. I'm the associate editor for the COVID Health Equity Resources section of the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. The COVID Health Equity Resources section offers a collection of educational and training materials research articles and resources that are curated to help medical professionals and institutions provide equitable COVID-19 care. Check us out at idsociety.org forward slash COVID-19 real-time learning network forward slash COVID health equity resources. What would you say you found most challenging in your role as the CDC director uh, among all the challenges we've already talked about or others? 
Maybe I'll, I'll answer that question <laughs> with sort of a scenario. So, you know, it was Thanksgiving Day when we first learned about Omicron. I literally had taken the turkey out of the oven and had, you know, numerous phone calls about how we were about to meet to discuss Omicron. Within about six weeks, we had a million cases a day of Omicron. It was Christmas Eve when we really started to hear the challenges that our healthcare infrastructure was, was facing with regard to Omicron and the fact that there were a lot of um, employees that were out, that there were a lot, not just in healthcare, but also in the delivery of the services. So for example, if FedEx workers couldn't, were out and couldn't deliver goods, then we didn't have blood culture bottles and dialysate, right? So um, we didn't have people on the front lines and CVS, you know, uh, able in, in some places, able to even fill prescriptions, fill um, insulin prescriptions. So this is kind of what we were facing, but we didn't know a lot about Omicron at the time. We were having weekly calls with South Africa to understand what they were learning, yet we had new guidance that we had to change. So how do we take the science that we know, stand on the shoulders of, you know, two years of the pandemic, take the science that we know, take the epidemiology that we know is coming, which is a massive amount of cases, create implementable guidance that people will actually follow in a relatively swift period of time, and yet communicate that in a way that is crystal clear. And so I think that that has been in its 75 year history, CDC, though the public health agency of this country and a trusted one at that has never had to deal with the pandemic the last of which was 100 years ago. So we have learned so much as we've been doing this, the data that are necessary to communicate and to, to bring in and to report out with record speed. But I think that six-week period really encapsulates what we have had to do as an agency during a really fast-moving times. It was incredibly difficult to pivot like that and make those decisions and also take into account the reality of, of how things would work just for routine processes in the US, everything that goes along, and, and be able to communicate that it was more about that than kind of following rigid guidelines for things and, and not be misinterpreted. It gets back to, to having both not enough staff in places to implement things like that and get the message out, but also, um, having processes that while they're really good, they're often somewhat reactionary. You know, one of the successes, I was gonna ask you about what you consider your successes, I think one of the successes is, um, is starting the Center for Forecasting and Outbreak Analytics. Um, and, and also with that, wastewater surveillance and, and putting that through, um, which are both techniques that I think can help us get to these things faster. We've already been taught that we don't. So um, right. what do you think about those two things? Maybe I'll just talk quickly about the Center for Forecasting and Outbreak Analytics, which I'm really excited about. Um, really the brainchild during the transition team of a group during the transition team. Um, it has started as a small and mighty team and it's expanding and I'm really excited about what it can do. But when you just think about Omicron in general, we had forecasting from this team um, and from its academic partners that have 
um, allowed us to look at the implications of closing travel versus not. And what that does, knowing what we probably had here, what are the implications of that? The implications of when exactly were we anticipating the maximum Omicron surge? And what did we need to do? And how high was it going to get? We have recognized like what data, as they forecast those questions, what are the salient data points that we need? What are the things that these models are most sensitive to? And do we have the data to inform that? And one of the questions was really controlling for prior disease, prior vaccination history, all of these other things. Um, how bad is Omicron compared to Delta? And we didn't actually have a good analysis of that here in this country controlling for all of those things. And they were able to leverage um, collaborations in order to answer that question in really record time. So I, I'm super excited about what this team can do, not only in its small and mighty state, but as we grow it and expand it, um, both on the data side, the essential data components, what are those essential surveillance components and what are we missing in our current surveillance? And then how do we forecast that out and anticipate not just things during COVID, but of course, all other infectious disease and truly non-infectious threats. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. Wastewater too, we now have over about 800 sites that are reporting wastewater. It is um, not as, as uniformly um, distributed across the country at a, as I was would like, and not every site collects from the same size population. So when you look at our national surveillance and wastewater surveillance, you can see many different dots. Some are 30,000, some are 300,000. Some have sort of foci that we can't get to because they're on well water and many other things. But we're learning from it, and we know that we can not only look at COVID-19, but we can also look for Canada auris, and we can look for antimicrobial resistance and foodborne outbreaks. So there's so much that we're going to be able to do once we've expanded upon it and learn more from it. Yeah, and I think establishing the infrastructure more broadly is going to be really very helpful as well. So we're recording this during a pretty low case period uh, for COVID, and I know many are hopeful we're nearing the end. I get asked all the time when the end is gonna be, and I just say I can't tell you because I've always been wrong. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of interested in your thoughts about when we might transition from a pandemic stage to an endemic stage of this virus and what that might mean for, um, for what we're doing in terms of surveillance and prevention at this point. I get asked this question to predict all the time. And like you, it's like, wow, we've been served enough curveballs. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't be predicting so much. Um, certainly, as we think about endemic, the way I consider endemic is an R not of one or a steady state of disease. I think we would be remiss to say we're, we've been at you know, this same number of cases for a couple of weeks now. But I think we have to actually drill down more locally because I think all of us recognize that this disease is local, right? And it, it lives in a backdrop of um, how much disease is in a given community, how much protection is in a given community, whether it be by vaccination or boosting or prior disease, how much waning is in a community. And so as we look at the average of what's happening here in the United States, things look pretty good on average, but we do have some 
some focal areas that have seen an increased number of cases, specifically in the Northeast. And so we really do need to understand what that means in those areas. Now, the Northeast is an area that happens to be pretty well vaccinated in general. So how is that rise of cases going to live on that backdrop? We will see. But I think it, it, it does sort of lead to why we pivoted from our just looking at cases to really looking at COVID-19 community levels. And that is sort of a synthesis of both cases, hospital admissions, and hospital capacity, because we really wanted to make sure that we were evaluating and valuing how severe disease was. We didn't necessarily want to have major policies that were put in place if most people were experiencing asymptomatic disease. Now, of course, that also has to you know, speak to vulnerable populations, and we do want to make sure that vulnerable populations have access to the resources that they need, whether it be Evusheld or a fourth dose or a fifth dose or Paxlovid testing, all of the things that they need to be able to well protect themselves. But we also need to strike this balance between um, how are we reacting to a sheer mere number of cases versus are those cases actually landing in our hospitals? Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the really nice features of the shift that's been made in terms of community activity. I was talking to someone who asked me about their travel for the next couple of weeks to a different places, and I sent them there and and said that can inform how careful you want to be when you go out in public um, and, and that sort of thing. There's kind of competing foci for or focuses for vaccination. Um, I still think there's a, a fair number of people in the country that have not gotten a third shot and many that haven't gotten a first. And I guess it's difficult to kind of do much more than, in, than ask everyone to, to get vaccinated. Do you find that there's waning interest? And if so, how can we reach those populations? Well, I, I think there has been, but I generally am not one to give up hope in these areas. I feel like every, you know, we knew that the people who were flocking to roll up their sleeves were going to be the ones who were there yeah. early and that the harder ones to reach would be those now. And so I think we still have continuing efforts. And in fact, I would say as physicians on the front line, as caretakers on the front line, our job is to listen. When people have said to me, how do you get somebody vaccinated? How do you convince somebody to get vaccinated? I generally say you listen, um, and that's generally what you know. The social workers and and care, clinical care coordinators have, and community workers have always told me in caring for people with HIV is you have to listen. Um, and you know, when you do, you start to understand and hear why people haven't been vaccinated so far. Somebody told me a story, a clinical story of, you know, a family member who had had Guillain-Barre from a, from a flu vaccine. So you hear that and you're like, well, that's probably reasonable for them to feel that way about this COVID-19 vaccine. We can listen to that and then we can understand and have a further conversation about why this vaccine is different or the risks of Guillain-Barre with this vaccine versus others, but I think we have to address and understand why those challenges for each individual patient. From a boosting standpoint, as you know, we do um, have too few people in this country who are boosted at this point. What we know from a lot of data at this point is, especially in the context of Omicron and BA2, that that, that boost, um, that 
after the primary series, that first boost is critically important. We need the protection. We need more immune protection that that booster provides. Um, there are now continue to be emerging data about waning after that second boost and what uh, after that first boost and what a second boost would mean. But really, we have a plethora of data demonstrating the need and value for that first boost. And we'll continue to follow where we are with the second boost. Hi, I'm Dr. Kim Hansen. Advance the career of your colleagues by encouraging them to apply to become a fellow of IDSA. Visit idsociety.org forward slash FIDSA. Aside from COVID and COVID and COVID, can you tell me what other things are priorities of yours and what you hope to focus on when when, uh, you have more time to devote to them at CDC? Yeah, and I would say um, there's so much that's going on at CDC. The public is hearing about COVID, but there really has been so much that has been going on at CDC. The, The main work has never stopped in the last year. We've had two imported cases of monkeypox, um, several cases of Burkholderia pseudomaliae. We've had 63 foodborne infections. So we really have done the work that CDC is responsible for doing that that doesn't get as much airtime as COVID-19. I think one of the things that I think is critically important in this moment is to bolster the whole public health infrastructure of this country, because I think then all ships rise. So that really means um, establishing, bolstering the public health workforce, upskilling it, and making sure that it is as diverse as the communities we serve. And so, um, and, and making sure that it's culturally competent in those communities. So we have a lot of work to do on workforce. We have a huge amount of work to do, and we've been jumpstarting that through this pandemic on data modernization, making sure that our data systems connect and talk to each other across over 3,000 jurisdictions where we get data from the CDC into the CDC, and making sure those systems talk to one another. When our information system for immunization can talk to our tech testing system for COVID, then we can start getting data on vaccine effectiveness. So connecting our data systems. Third is our laboratory infrastructure and and working to make sure that we have labs in our jurisdictions that can do the important work and the diagnostic work that we need done, whether it be genotypic surveillance or wastewater surveillance, we need those laboratories in our jurisdictions to do that work. So there's a lot of work in public health infrastructure. I think everyone knows within that, I I feel strongly about health equity and public health equity. Last April, we declared racism a serious public health threat. Um, In doing so, I'm proud to say that we had over 200 public health departments follow suit. So we now really do have a national movement towards um, working towards health equity in this country. And then of course, global health and global health security. I think if we've learned one thing, at least we knew this in IDSA, but but our our country has no borders um, when it comes to public health threats and health threats and what happens around the world um, very much has an impact on what happens here. So we do really wanna take these activities and work to make sure and expand um, public health across the world. So all of that is sort of in the backdrop of health that we absolutely need to do. And then of course there are priorities within that um, I think are key to, to IDSA. And some of those include ending the HIV epidemic, viral hepatitis that has been on the forefront of the work of this uh, this society, antimicrobial resistance, which was one of the biggest public health threats that people were talking about before COVID. Um, and in fact, some 
some of the challenges of antimicrobial resistance have only gotten worse during the pandemic, but people are not yet talking about that, but I think they will be. And then of course, many of the things that um, have been laid bare throughout this pandemic, real challenges in mental health, challenges in opioid use disorder, climate and health, many of which impact areas of infectious disease and vector-borne diseases. Um, so there, uh, maternal mortality is, is also on that list um, and speaks to many of the health equity issues. So there, there is certainly no dearth of work to do. Yeah, I, I think the pandemic has, has stress-tested all of those fault lines and uh, infectious disease doctors have been well aware of health equity issues for years with many of the things that we've treated, particularly HIV. There are really wor real workforce crises in the people that take care of people with HIV as well. We're at the point where we could potentially end that epidemic, but we really need manpower and woman power to do that. So I guess in closing, I'd like to ask how IDSA and HIVMA can support you and CDC in your goals. and how you think our members can be clinical eyes and ears for CDC now and uh, going forward. That's a delight to answer <laughs> because so many of you are such my dear friends and colleagues. First, I would say challenge and raise and mentor and foster the next generation because um, we need to pass this on. I have said time and time again, I would really like to talk to future generations, um, work to inspire them to, to demonstrate what an incredible field and moment um, and privilege it has been to be in this moment. There is no question that we have faced our challenges and we still have more ahead, but um, we have um, been called to this moment um, and trained for it. So I think fostering public health careers, infectious disease careers, I think is really going to be key. And then the second thing I think that's really important is to find this healthy balance between challenging and understanding and dissecting into those areas of gray because we absolutely need to do that. But then also having a public voice that um, really uh, is, is unified towards um, science and public health and infectious diseases in this moment. For the most part, where that dialogue has been divisive, where, whether it be on Twitter or the news, is really on one tiny little point, and that there's general uniformity on many of the things that we are working together to try and solve and to try and guide and try and recommend. So I would, I would invite us all to lean in on areas where we have consensus, to keep up that healthy dialogue amongst us, um, where we don't yet have some consensus and where the science is evolving and emerging. Um, but to try and send a unified message to the American people who I, I recognize have to um, sort of become their own epidemiologists in this moment. And so I, I welcome doing that with all of you. And, and I'm really grateful to have so many friends in IDSA around the country, around the world to be able to do that together. Yeah, and I totally agree. And, and, you know, one of our society's top goals is fostering the next generation of infectious disease professionals, be they doctors or advanced practitioners or pharmacists. Um, and, and we're working really hard to try to concretely have that happen. Um, but, you know, it's also incredibly inspiring to have someone like yourself leading this effort and and standing up so well and so forcefully and 
and being such a leader under such tough circumstances. It doesn't surprise me at all, <laughs> but, but it's still very inspiring. And, and, you know, when I talk with people thinking about going into the field, your name is one that comes up quite a lot. So that's, that's really great for us. And we're, we're as supportive as we can be. Well, please know for all of you that I stand on and lean on all of your shoulders. So I, I couldn't do it without all of you. Well, thanks for spending time with us. I know your schedule is not your own most of the time. So, <laughs> Thank you. Please stay well, everyone.